Chapter 3, verses 21 through 29 of Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians by Martin Luther. Translated by Theodore Grabner. Chapter 3. Verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Before he digressed, Paul stated that the law does not justify shall we then discard the law no no it supplies a certain need it supplies men with a needed realization of their sinfulness now arises another question if the law does no more than to reveal sin does it not oppose the promises of god the Jews believed that by the restraint and discipline of the law the promises of God would be hastened, in fact, earned by them. Paul answers, Not so. On the contrary, if we pay too much attention to the law, the promises of God will be slowed up. How can God fulfill his promises to a people that hates the law? Verse 21. God forbid. God never said to Abraham, In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast kept the law. When Abraham was still uncircumcised, and without the law, or any law indeed, when he was still an idol worshipper, God said to him, Get thee out of thy country, etc., I am thy shield, etc. In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. These are unconditional promises which God freely made to Abraham without respect to works. This is aimed especially at the Jews who think that the promises of God are impeded by their sins. Paul says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises because of our sins, or hastens his promises because of any merit on our part. God's promises are not influenced by our attitudes. They rest in his goodness and mercy. Just because the law increases sin, it does not therefore obstruct the promises of God. The law confirms the promises in that it prepares a person to look for the fulfillment of the promises of God in Christ. The proverb has it that hunger is the best cook. The law makes afflicted consciences hungry for Christ. Christ tastes good to them. Hungry hearts appreciate Christ. Thirsty souls are what Christ wants. He invites them. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ's benefits are so precious that he will dispense them only to those who need them and really desire them. 
Verse 21. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. The law cannot give life. It kills. The law does not justify a person before God. It increases sin. The law does not secure righteousness. It hinders righteousness. The apostle declares emphatically that the law of itself cannot save. Despite the intelligibility of Paul's statement, our enemies fail to grasp it. Otherwise, they would not emphasize free will, natural strength, the works of supererogation, etc. To escape the charge of forgery, they always have their convenient annotation handy that Paul is referring only to the ceremonial and not to the moral law. But Paul includes all laws. He expressly says, if there had been a law given. There is no law by which righteousness may be obtained, not a single one. Why not? Verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Where? First in the promises concerning Christ in Genesis 3.15 and in Genesis 22.18, which speak of the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham. The fact that these promises were made unto the fathers concerning Christ implies that the fathers were subject to the curse of sin and eternal death. Otherwise, why the need of promises? Next, Holy Writ concludes all under sin in this passage from Paul. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Again, in the passage which the Apostle quotes from Deuteronomy 27.26, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. This passage clearly submits all men to the curse, not only those who sin openly against the law, but also those who sincerely endeavor to perform the law, inclusive of monks, friars, hermits, etc. The conclusion is inevitable. Faith alone justifies without works. If the law itself cannot justify, much less can imperfect performance of the law or the works of the law justify. Verse 22 That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. The Apostle stated before that the Scripture hath concluded all under sin. Forever? No, only until the promise should be fulfilled. The promise, you will recall, is the inheritance itself or the blessing promised to Abraham. Deliverance from the law, sin, death, and the devil, and the free gift of grace, righteousness, salvation, and eternal life. This promise, says Paul, is not obtained by any merit, by any law, or by any work. This promise is given. To whom? To those who believe. In whom? In Jesus Christ. 
verse 23. But before faith came. The apostle proceeds to explain the service which the law is to render. Previously, Paul had said that the law was given to reveal the wrath and death of God upon all sinners. Although the law kills, God brings good out of evil. He uses the law to bring life. God saw that the universal illusion of self-righteousness could not be put down in any other way but by the law. The law dispels all self-illusions. It puts the fear of God in a man. Without this fear, there can be no thirst for God's mercy. God accordingly uses the law for a hammer to break up the illusion of self-righteousness, that we should despair of our own strength and efforts at self-justification. Verse 23 but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up into the faith which should afterwards be revealed. The law is a prison to those who have not yet obtained grace. No prisoner enjoys the confinement. He hates it. If he could, he would smash the prison and find his freedom at all costs. As long as he stays in prison, he refrains from evil deeds, not because he wants to, but because he has to. The bars and the chains restrain him. He does not regret the crime that put him in jail. On the contrary, he is mighty sore that he cannot rob and kill as before. If he could escape, he would go right back to robbing and killing. The law enforces good behavior, at least outwardly. We obey the law because, if we don't, we will be punished. Our obedience is inspired by fear. We obey under duress, and we do it resentfully. Now what kind of righteousness is this when we refrain from evil out of fear of punishment? Hence, the righteousness of the law is at bottom nothing but love of sin and hatred of righteousness. All the same, the law accomplishes this much, that it will outwardly at least, and to a certain extent, repress vice and crime. But the law is also a spiritual prison, a veritable hell. When the law begins to threaten a person with death and the eternal wrath of God, a man just cannot find any comfort at all. He cannot shake off at will the nightmare of terror which the law stirs up in his conscience. Of this terror of the law, the Psalms furnish many glimpses. The law is a civil and a spiritual prison, and such it should be. For that the law is intended. Only the confinement in the prison of the law must not be unduly prolonged. It must come to an end. The freedom of faith must succeed the imprisonment of the law. Happy the person who knows how to utilize the law so that it serves the purposes of grace and of faith.
unbelievers are ignorant of this happy knowledge when cain was first shut up in the prison of the law he felt no pang at the fratricide he had committed he thought he could pass it off as an incident with a shrug of the shoulder am i my brother's keeper he answered god flippantly but when he heard the ominous words what hast thou done the voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground cain began to feel his imprisonment did he know how to get out of prison no he failed to call the gospel to his aid he said my punishment is greater than i can bear he could only think of the prison he forgot that he was brought face to face with his crime so that he should hurry to god for mercy and for pardon cain remained in the prison of the law and despaired as a stone prison proves a physical handicap so the spiritual prison of the law proves a chamber of torture but this it should only be until faith be revealed the silly conscience must be educated to this talk to your conscience say sister you are now in jail all right but you don't have to stay there forever it is written that we are shut up into faith which should afterwards be revealed christ will lead you to freedom do not despair like cain saul or judas they might have gone free if they had called christ to their aid just take it easy sister conscience it's good for you to be locked up for a while it will teach you to appreciate christ how anybody can say that he by nature loves the law is beyond me the law is a prison to be feared and hated any unconverted person who says he loves the law is a liar he does not know what he is talking about we love the law about as well as a murderer loves his gloomy cell his straitjacket and the iron bars in front of him how then can the law justify us verse twenty three shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed we know that paul has reference to the time of christ's coming it was then that faith and the object of faith were fully revealed but we may apply the historical fact to our inner life when christ came he abolished the law and brought liberty and life to light this he continues to do in the hearts of the believers the christian has a body in whose members as paul says sin dwells and wars i take sin to mean not only the deed but root tree fruit and all a christian may perhaps not fall into the gross sins of murder adultery theft but he is not free from impatience complaints hatreds and blasphemy of god as carnal lust is strong in a young man in a man of full age the desire for glory 
and in an old man covetousness so impatience doubt and hatred of god often prevail in the hearts of sincere christians examples of these sins may be garnered from the psalms job jeremiah and all the sacred scriptures accordingly each christian continues to experience in his heart times of the law and times of the gospel the times of the law are discernible by heaviness of heart by a lively sense of sin and a feeling of despair brought on by the law these periods of the law will come again and again as long as we live to mention my own case there are many times when i find fault with god and am impatient with him the wrath and the judgment of god displease me my wrath and impatience displease him then is the season of the law when the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh the time of grace returns when the heart is enlivened by the promise of god's mercy it soliloquizes why art thou cast down o my soul and why art thou disquieted within me can you see nothing but law sin death and hell is there no grace no forgiveness no joy peace life heaven no christ and god trouble me no more my soul hope in god who has not spared his own dear son but has given him into death for thy sins when the law carries things too far say mr law you are not the whole show there are other and better things than you they tell me to trust in the lord there is a time for the law and a time for grace let us study to be good timekeepers it is not easy law and grace may be miles apart in essence but in the heart they are pretty close together in the heart fear and trust sin and grace law and gospel cross paths continually whether reason hears that justification before god is obtained by grace alone it draws the inference that the law is without value the doctrine of the law must therefore be studied carefully lest we either reject the law altogether or are tempted to attribute to the law a capacity to save there are three ways in which the law may be abused first by the self-righteous hypocrites who fancy that they can be justified by the law secondly by those who claim that christian liberty exempts a christian from the observance of the law these says peter use their liberty for a cloak of maliciousness and bring the name and the gospel of christ into ill repute thirdly the law is abused by those who do not understand that the law is meant to drive us to christ when the law is properly used its value cannot be too highly appraised 
It will take me to Christ every time. Verse 24 Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. This simile of the schoolmaster is striking. Schoolmasters are indispensable. But show me a pupil who loves his schoolmaster. How little love is lost upon them the Jews showed by their attitude toward Moses. They would have been glad to stone Moses to death, Exodus 17.4. You cannot expect anything else. How can a pupil love a teacher who frustrates his desires? And if the pupil disobeys, the schoolmaster whips him, and the pupil has to like it and even kiss the rod with which he was beaten. Do you think the schoolboy feels good about it? As soon as the teacher turns his back, pupil breaks the rod and throws it into the fire. And if he were stronger than the teacher, he would not take the beatings, but beat up the teacher. All the same, teachers are indispensable. Otherwise, the children would grow up without discipline, instruction, and training. But how long are the scolding and the whippings of the schoolmaster to continue? only for a time, until the boy has been trained to be a worthy heir of his father. No father wants his son to be whipped all the time. The discipline is to last until the boy has been trained to be his father's worthy successor. The law is such a schoolmaster, not for always, but until we have been brought to Christ. The law is not just another schoolmaster. The law is a specialist to bring us to Christ. What would you think of a schoolmaster who could only torment and beat a child? Yet of such schoolmasters there were plenty in former times, regular bruisers. The law is not that kind of a schoolmaster. It is not to torment us always. With its lashings, it is only too anxious to drive us to Christ. The law is like the good schoolmaster who trains his children to find pleasure in doing things they formerly detested. Verse 24 That we might be justified by faith. The law is not to teach us another law. When a person feels the full force of the law, he is likely to think, I have transgressed all the commandments of God. I am guilty of eternal death. If God will spare me, I will change and live right from now on. This natural but entirely wrong reaction to the law has bred the many ceremonies and works devised to earn grace and remission of sins. The law means to enlarge my sins, to make me small, so that I may be justified by faith in Christ. Faith is neither law nor word, but confidence in Christ who is the end of the law. How so is Christ the end of the law? Not in this way that he replaced the old law with new laws, 
nor is Christ the end of the law in a way that makes him a hard judge who has to be bribed by works, as the papists teach. Christ is the end or finish of the law to all who believe in him. The law can no longer accuse or condemn them. But what does the law accomplish for those who have been justified by Christ? Paul answers this question next. Verse 25 But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The apostle declares that we are free from the law. Christ fulfilled the law for us. We may live in joy and safety under Christ. The trouble is, our flesh will not let us believe in Christ with all our heart. The fault lies not with Christ, but with us. Sin clings to us as long as we live and spoils our happiness in Christ. Hence, we are only partly free from the law. With the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Romans 7.25 As far as the conscience is concerned, it may cheerfully ignore the law. But because sin continues to dwell in the flesh, the law waits around to molest our conscience. More and more, however, Christ increases our faith, and in the measure in which our faith is increased, sin, law, and flesh subside. If anybody objects to the gospel and the sacraments on the ground that Christ has taken away our sins once and for always, you will know what to answer. You will answer, Indeed, Christ has taken away my sins, but my flesh, the world, and the devil interfere with my faith. The little light of faith in my heart does not shine all over me at once. It is a gradual diffusion. In the meanwhile, I console myself with the thought that eventually my flesh will be made perfect in the resurrection. Verse 26 For we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Paul, as a true apostle of faith, always has the word faith on the tip of his tongue. By faith, says he, we are the children of God. The law cannot beget children of God. It cannot regenerate us. It can only remind us of the old birth by which we were born into the kingdom of the devil. The best the law can do for us is to prepare us for a new birth through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ regenerates us into the children of God. St. John bears witness to this in his gospel. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John 1.12 What tongue of man or angel 
can adequately extol the mercy of God toward us miserable sinners, in that he adopted us for his own children and fellow heirs with his Son by the simple means of faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 27 For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To put on Christ may be understood in two ways, according to the law and according to the gospel. According to the law, as in Romans 13, 14, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, which means to follow the example of Christ. To put on Christ according to the gospel means to clothe oneself with the righteousness, wisdom, power, life, and spirit of Christ. By nature we are clad in the garb of Adam. This garb Paul likes to call the old man. Before we can become the children of God, this old man must be put off, as Paul says. Ephesians 4.29 the garment of Adam must come off like soiled clothes. Of course, it is not as simple as changing one's clothes, but God makes it simple. He clothes us with the righteousness of Christ by means of baptism. As the apostle says in this verse, As many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. With this change of garments, a new birth, a new life stirs in us. New affections toward God spring up in the heart. New determinations affect our will. All this is to put on Christ according to the gospel. Needless to say, when we have put on the robe of the righteousness of Christ, we must not forget to put on also the mantle of the imitation of Christ. Verse 28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. The list might be extended indefinitely. There is neither preacher nor hearer, neither teacher nor scholar, neither master nor servant, etc. In the matter of salvation, rank, learning, righteousness, influence, count for nothing. With this statement, Paul deals a death blow to the law. When a person has put on Christ, nothing else matters. Whether a person is a Jew a punctilious and circumcised observer of the law of Moses, or whether a person is a noble and wise Greek, does not matter. Circumstances, personal worth, character, achievements, have no bearing upon justification. Before God they count for nothing. What counts is that we put on Christ. Whether a servant performs his duties well, whether those who are in authority govern wisely, whether a man marries, provides for his family, and is an honest citizen, 
whether a woman is chaste, obedient to her husband, and a good mother, all these advantages do not qualify a person for salvation. These virtues are commendable, of course, but they do not count points for justification. All the best laws, ceremonies, religions, and deeds of the world cannot take away sin, guilt, cannot dispatch death, cannot purchase life. There is much disparity among men in the world, but there is no such disparity before God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Let the Jews, let the Greeks, let the whole world keep silent in the presence of God. Those who are justified are justified by Christ. Without faith in Christ, the Jew with his laws, the monk with his holy orders, the Greek with his wisdom, the servant with his obedience, shall perish forever. Verse 28 For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. There is much imparity among men in the world, and it is a good thing. If the woman would change places with the man, if the son would change places with the father, the servant with the master, nothing but confusion would result. In Christ, however, all are equal. We all have one and the same gospel, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one Christ and Savior of all. The Christ of Peter, Paul, and all the saints is our Christ. Paul can always be depended on to add the conditional clause. In Christ Jesus. If we lose sight of Christ, we lose out. Verse 29 And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If ye be Christ's means, if you believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ, then are you the children of Abraham indeed. Through our faith in Christ, Abraham gains paternity over us and over the nations of the earth according to the promise. In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Through faith we belong to Christ and Christ to us. End of chapter 3 of Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians Recording by Bill Mosley, Frelsberg, Texas, USA